and legalism. And uh, we're going to explore that theme just a little bit. How many of you have heard of the food, fast food chain Chick-fil-A? Chick-fil-A, they're pretty well known for pretty good chicken sandwiches, but they're also known for the owner's unwavering uh, stand against opening on Sunday. But it turns out that this unwavering stance sometimes has some wiggle room to it when needed. As uh, consistent as they are with that, that Sunday closing, that position they've held, they're, they're not pharisaical about it. They recognize that there can be a need for exceptions at times. For, uh, for instance, Chick-fil-A, uh, an, an exception came up a few years back. Uh, when the Atlanta International Airport was hit with a complete blackout. This is one of the world's busiest airports, and the blackout resulted in hundreds of canceled flights and thousands of stranded passengers. While Atlanta's city government was busy trying to find accommodations for all of these passengers, they tweeted out that the passengers' meals would be handled by someone else. Guess who it was? Chick-fil-A, they would provide food for those thousands of people on a Sunday. So a store that's always closed on Sunday was happy to open their doors on this particular Sunday of rest because thousands of people needed help. You know, several times in the Gospels, we read about Jesus doing things on the Sabbath, healing on the Sabbath. And one time when the Pharisees confronted him about it, he put them in their place by, by asking, which one of you would have a, a son or an ox that would fall into a well and would not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? You know, our spiritual growth can be stunted or even choked to death by the weeds of legalism. So what does that mean, legalism? Legalism can be defined as a, a strict adherence to a law or a set of laws. And specifically, as it relates to faith, a, a legalist would be a person who believes that performance is the way to gain favor with God. Legalism is our human attempt to gain salvation or prove our spirituality by some sort of outward conformity to a list of religious do's and don'ts. And so our text today is going to deal with this very specific topic. But before we jump into the text, I want to just make some basic observations about legalism. So let's just look at six basic observations. And the first one is this, that we tend to think that others are legalistic, but that we certainly are not. The fact is that we're all legalistic by nature at times. We tend to judge others by our own standards of what is acceptable and what isn't. In essence, at times we think that our sins maybe smell a little better than other people's do. Sometimes we have little tolerance for people who sin differently than we might. The second thing I want us to notice is that legalism is highly contagious. Well, it's while it's usually less conscious and organized in our minds than it was among the Pharisees of Jesus' day, legalism can spread like a, like a bad virus, can I say that? Through a church co congregation. Third, legalism can take a, a vibrant face and make it dull and lifeless. It can evaporate enthusiasm and destroy our joy and stifle our true spirituality. Instead of finding freedom through Christ, 
many believers are living with great burdens brought on by enforced legalism. Fourth, legalism produces self-righteousness and judgment. Majoring in guilt and misguided sacrifices, legalism urges its followers to evaluate their relationship with God on the basis of standards and scores, and it expects others to do the same. Fifth, legalism can make us narrow and divisive. The legalists insist that everyone else live up to the standards that they have adopted. In other words, everybody ought to be like me then I'd be really happy. When we think this way, we miss the delight of diversity in the Lord's church. And then finally, legalism can make it difficult for people to see Jesus. And this is perhaps the most serious observation and warning. There is nothing that pushes a non-Christian away faster than an arbitrary list of rules and regulations. Some of us inadvertently portray Jesus as a drill sergeant instead of a delightful Savior. The Sabbath, our Saturday, was a big deal in the Old Testament. It's a big deal in the time of Jesus. Did you know that in the time of Jesus, Jewish leaders had established 39 Sabbath clarifications, which each, with each of them having multiple subdivisions, making for over 1,500 prohibitions, things you could not do on the Sabbath. Here's just a few to kind of whet your appetite. Did you know that it was unlawful to kill a flea that landed on your arm because that would make you guilty of hunting on the Sabbath. <laughs> if a man's ox fell into the ditch, he could pull it out, but if the man fell into the ditch while pulling the ox out, he had to stay there. <laughs> you could dip your radish in salt, but if you left it there too long, that would become pickling and thus working. The Pharisees actually had discourses on how long it took to pickle a radish. These are ridiculous, aren't they? The Jewish Talmud, that was like the commentary that kind of codified and explained the, the intricacies of acceptable behavior, had 24 chapters of Sabbath laws. One rabbi said that he spent two and a half years studying just one of those chapters to figure out the specifics of what could be picked up and carried on the Sabbath. My goodness, what a difficult time people must have had following God in the time of Jesus. Well, we know that the Pharisees attacked Jesus about the Sabbath. In, this, in the Gospels, we see six different times where they had a confrontation with Jesus. Five of them had to do with Jesus healing somebody on the Sabbath, which they classified as work. And one of them, our text today, has to do specifically with the behaviors of Jesus's disciples. And so with all of that kind of as a background, we're going to read the text together today. It's going to be on the screen from Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. So let's read this together. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? 
he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Well, we're going to follow a, a three-word outline to kind of help us see the flow of this narrative as we discover that compassion is always superior to man-made commandments. And so first, let's look at this accusation. An accusation, the Pharisees and other religious leaders are ramping up their accusations against Jesus. And they were offended. They've already been offended when Jesus forgave sin on the Sabbath. And now they are really irritated because his students are not following the rules. Let's look a little bit closer at verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of wheat. Now, while there were many roads in Israel, it was quite common for people in that day to take shortcuts through the various fields to get where you wanted to go. Well, it would be kind of foreign to us. According to Jewish law, if you were hungry, it was okay as you walked through a farmer's field to pluck the ripe grain and to rub it in your hands, to break open the husks, and then to eat the kernels. Now, this probably wouldn't go over well very, very well today, would it? If somebody took a, a shortcut through your backyard and began to help themselves to your garden, you might not like that so much. But this practice in Israel served as kind of a public welfare system so that no one would ever go hungry. Farmers were even instructed to leave extra grain standing in the corners of their fields after the harvest so that those who were struggling could have some of the grain or the other harvest in order to make their dinner. So I want you to notice that the Pharisees don't attack the disciples for eating the grain. They don't accuse them of stealing the grain, but of harvesting and threshing, which in their minds was working on the Sabbath. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 11, the parallel to this passage, we read, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them together in their hands. Well, you see, that was a big problem because rolling the grain to remove the husk was considered sifting. And rubbing the kernel, well, that would be considered threshing. And eating would be considered grinding. And tossing the chaff in the air, well, that would be considered winnowing. And all of that is work. And they're basing all of this on one instruction from the law. Let me read it to you from Exodus 34 and verse 21. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. There's the law. Well, we don't read that Jesus was eating the wheat. I, I, I speculate perhaps he was eating it right along with his disciples. But the disciples were holding Jesus responsible for the behavior of his followers. This was actually a, a common understanding in that culture. If a rabbi's disciples did something wrong, the rabbi himself was held accountable. By the way, that just makes me think of this. It might be good for us to sometimes think about how does my behavior reflect on my rabbi, on my leader, on my Lord? Well, 
Look at verse 24. The Pharisees were saying to Jesus, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? I kind of get the sense that these religious guys are following Jesus around, just looking to pounce on him. It's like they're kind of playing the gotcha game. We see that, don't we, in the, in the, in the use of that word, look. What are they doing out there in the field anyway with Jesus' disciples? I want you to notice that their accusation is also in the present tense. We're saying to him. In other words, what's the, what they're doing is they're not making a one-time accusation, but rather they're saying, why are your disciples always working on the Sabbath? Why are they working continually on the Sabbath? It was something perhaps that they repeated before. They couldn't let it go. The Pharisees they love to ask Jesus questions. Not to, not to listen to, for answers, though, but to discover further information that would bolster their point of view. We never do that, do we? Do we ever look for other stuff to bolster our point of view and what others are doing or saying? That's what the Pharisees did. They kind of served as religious traffic cops, and so they're waiting to write tickets about Sabbath-breaking. And they're basically charging the disciples and therefore Jesus with breaking one of the Ten Commandments. Why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath is the question. Well, Jesus wanted everyone to know that doing good is better than Sabbath keeping. By the way, are you kind of picking up by now that Jesus sometimes purposely did things on the Sabbath? in order to rile up the religious leaders? You see, the Sabbath was intended to be a special sign between Jehovah God and his covenant people. So let's just take a moment to reflect on the main purposes behind Sabbath observation in the Old Testament. And maybe, just maybe, we can make some application to our own life as well. And, and the first one is this, rest, rest. The word Sabbath comes from the word sabaton. It literally means a cessation from labor, to desist from exhortation. See that double B there in the, in the Hebrew language? That communicates an intensive form or a, a complete cessation. So we could say that the Sabbath was the stop working day. Stop working and rest. Well, there was a second purpose of the, of the Sabbath, and that was to give a rhythm to life. God set up a rhythm of work and rest, of labor and leisure. Here's the command of the Lord in Exodus 29. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to your Lord your God. On it you shall not work. And then in verse 11 uh, is the original Sabbath rest that's modeled by the Lord himself. It says, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy, set apart for a purpose. And so, as we think about Sabbath in our own life, think about this. Are you taking time to rest? Are you looking to set up a spiritual rhythm in your life? where the Lord is a regular part of that and there's regular times for you to step back from the busyness and to connect with the Father. Rest and rhythm are so important. 
But that's not what the Pharisees were interested in as they were trying to enforce the Sabbath. That's not what they were interested in at all. And so after listening to their accusation, we see that Jesus presents an answer. And so let's consider that answer. I love how Jesus, he refuses to argue with their accusation, but instead he just appeals to Scripture to show that there is biblical evidence that compassion is more important than the commandment. He's actually rebuking them kind of with a touch of sarcasm when he says in verse 25, have you not read? Of course they've read. These guys are experts. They've read it. But Jesus says, haven't you read it? He loved to answer questions with a question. By the way, this is a great model for us as well. We can always and should always go back to the scripture. Don't look to get into arguments with people, but instead look to what God says and then just do that. Jesus did this so often. And so in verses 25 and 26, Jesus takes them back to a historical incident that they would have been very familiar with. It's found in 1 Samuel 21, if you want to go there and read that later. But Jesus kind of uh, encapsulates that here. And he says, have you not read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those who were with them. He entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with them. And so Jesus takes a, a, a historical event and he makes an appeal to King David, who is someone the Pharisees certainly would respect and honor. In the text in 1 Samuel that this passage comes out of, King Saul is pursuing David. He's trying to kill him. He is in pursuit of David. By the way, it's interesting to me that uh, Jesus is in the line of David, and he's being, in a way, pursued by the Pharisees. And so David and his companions are very hungry. David had disciples, followers, just like Jesus did. And they were hungry, just like Jesus' disciples were. And so Jesus takes this interesting little piece of Scripture, and he applies it to this current event that is a kind of a controversy with his critics. And so David asks the priest for help, and he's told that the bread is only, you know, the only bread available is this holy bread. It's also called, you might have heard it called the show bread. Uh, in our text here, it's called the bread of the presence. And this special bread was 12 loaves of bread baked to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. They were baked fresh every Sabbath day. By the way, that would have been considered work by the Pharisees. These breads were baked fresh every Sabbath day, and then they were placed on a table in the holy place in the tabernacle to remind Israel of the Lord's presence and their dependence on him for their daily bread. This bread was replaced every Sabbath day, and then the old bread would be eaten by the priests. And the law instructed that no one was allowed to eat this bread unless you were a descendant of Aaron, those who were serving in the priesthood. But in this case that Jesus points out, the priests gave David and his hungry men this holy set-apart bread so that they could have some lunch. Well, here's the principle. Humans, human needs transcend religious rituals. 
I want us to remember that. Human needs transcend religious rituals. There are times when human needs are more important than a legalistic keeping of the law. Here's the argument. If David and his disciples were allowed to violate an actual law, then certainly the greater David, Jesus himself, could allow his disciples to violate a man-made regulation on the Sabbath. The point is that even though it was theoretically illegal, God didn't rebuke David. Therefore, how much more is it all right for Jesus' disciples to eat, though they were not even breaking the law. You see, friends, God is always more concerned with meeting people's needs than he is with protecting any sort of man-made traditions. In Matthew's reporting of this account, Jesus' heart of mercy and compassion uh, really comes to the surface. Listen to Matthew 12. This is the same event that Matthew records that, uh, that we're reading in Mark. And Matthew says, um, he reflects it this way. He says, "If Jesus' words, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. You see, our love for others is far more important than our legalistic stubbornness or our traditions or our preferences or our favorite political leanings or whatever else we are holding on to dearly that alienates anyone that would seek to come to Jesus. I just think of a couple of examples that I thought would uh, maybe make this come to life for you. So I'm going to share these. Some, some years ago, someone in this church approached me after a church service, and they were upset that there had been a teenage boy playing an instrument in our worship band right up here on this stage, and he was wearing a baseball cap. Now, this person was very bothered. They said the young man was being disrespectful by wearing a hat in the house of God. My answer back to them, was to say how awesome I thought it was that this young man was spending time helping to lead God's people in worship on Sunday morning when many of his peers were probably back home in bed. So would it be okay, I asked this person, if he wore the hat as he led us in worship? You see, friends, ritualistic rules can crush compassion. Human needs transcend religious rituals. I'm going to give you another example, and this is more personal and embarrassing to me, but I'm going to share it anyway. A number of years ago, many years ago, I was preaching in our previous church up in Portland one Sunday. I was, uh, it was Youth Sunday. I was the youth minister. And the kids had done the whole service. Various, various kids in the youth group had led or participated in the service. And now the whole youth group was seated in the back of the auditorium. And up in the back, we had a balcony. And the kids had talked me into this. They said, we're all going to sit up in the balcony. I, I didn't think that was a good idea. I thought, oh, they're going to mess around up there. They're going to get into trouble. They're going to do things to distract me when I'm trying to preach. But I relented, and so they were, they were all sitting up there, and here I was on the stage preaching. And as I preached, I noticed one particular girl 
And there she was up in that balcony, constantly talking to her friend, moving and fiddling all through my whole sermon. I got angrier and angrier. I felt myself getting so upset that I was about to just think about calling all the kids out right in the middle of the service and telling them to knock it off. But I bit my tongue and I finished up. And then after the service, I made a beeline towards that girl. All the kids were down in the lobby. Everybody from church is milling about in the lobby like we do after church. I was ready to give her a piece of my mind about her constant disruption of my sermon. Just before I got to her to correct her, I overheard her introducing her friend from school that was visiting church for the first time that day. And as she introduced her friend to someone else, it became obvious to me that her visiting friend was hearing impaired. And that this young lady from our church had been signing and translating the sermon for her friend, her guest. I was busted. <laughs> Here she was helping a friend learn about Jesus while I was being judgmental and legalistic because I just wanted those kids back there to behave in church and not embarrass me. You see, compassion, compassion is always superior to man-made rules. Well, the Pharisees have made an accusation. Jesus has given an answer. And now he concludes with an application. The Sabbath was given to serve us. In verse 27, Jesus cuts through all the religious rules and rituals to the very reason behind the giving of the Sabbath. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So here's a question for us to think about. Which came first, man or the Sabbath? Well, if we were to go back to Genesis to refresh our memory, we would remember that man was created on the sixth day. The Sabbath came on the seventh day. It's interesting, as I was kind of researching this during the week, I learned that some rabbis in Jesus' day actually taught that humans were created in order to keep the Sabbath. That was their philosophy. Jesus wants them to understand that the opposite is true. The Sabbath was given to people out of the grace of God. It was designed to be a blessing, not something to hold us in bondage. We could say that the Sabbath was given to serve man, not something that we're called to serve. And so this day of rest was to be a time of, of refreshment, not a day of, of restrictions, not a, not a duty, but a great delight. But unfortunately, because the religious leaders had added a bunch of rules and regulations to it, it had become this terrible burden on the people of God. And so here's a, a helpful question to ask ourselves, just to see if there might be any religious rules or legalistic limitations kind of sneaking into our life, taking root in the way that we think. I think it's healthy from time to time to just ask ourselves this. Is this practice that's so important to me? Is this philosophy that I hold so dear? Is this whatever it is that I hold on to? Is it a benefit or is it leading to bondage? 
either my bondage or someone else's bondage. In verse 28, Jesus says, so the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. The title, Son of Man, is messianic. It means it was, it was used of the anointed one, the coming one, the Messiah, the one that was coming to free God's people. And so the Pharisees would have recognized exactly what Jesus was saying. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In essence, Jesus is saying, just in case they didn't get it, I'm in charge. I'm in charge of the Sabbath. Jesus is declaring himself as the sovereign God. The term Lord, the title Lord refers to, one, to, to, to the one whom all things belong to, like an owner. Jesus has authority over the Sabbath because he's the Almighty. In, in Matthew 12, Matthew's parallel of this passage, Jesus puts it this way. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is talking about himself. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the inventor, the owner, the author of the Sabbath. He holds, if you will, the copyright. He defines its purpose. It is far more important to have a relationship with Jesus than to follow a set of rules and regulations. And so when Jesus says he is the Lord of the Sabbath, he literally is the Sabbath. He has authority over the Sabbath and over everything and everyone. And that means that his disciples can do whatever it is that he directs them to do. You see, Jesus is the only way to have rest. Because Sabbath, as we already talked about, was about rest and rhythm. And so how do we find rest and rhythm? Instead of busily following a list of legalistic rules and working overtime to be accepted by God, it's time for us to believe and then to rest in the acceptance that only Jesus can offer. Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest. Have you received that rest? Is it something that you experience regularly? Or are you banking on a list of burdensome rules? Are you resting in his promises? Or are you living in the stress and the anxiety and the busyness that's so prevalent in the world around us and that Satan seeks to push into the kingdom of God? Listen to these words that Jesus spoke in Matthew 11. They're very familiar words. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You see, friends, if we are in Jesus, if he is the Lord, the ruler, the master, the savior, the teacher, our friend, the one that we are yoked to, then it's time to stop striving and scrambling to keep up with the artificial standards of religion and man-made rules and instead take a deep breath. Let's just do that right now. Take a deep breath. Find rest 
for your soul. Let's pray together.